Amen. I am so thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to sing in English. Um, you have no idea how beautiful that was for me. Um, my family and I have served in Albania, a country in Eastern Europe, for the last six years. I, I know some of you know nothing about Albania, and that's okay. I didn't know much about it either the first time I heard of it. It's a country where less than 1% of people know Christ. If you've ever met me, you know I say that. It just is an important thing to understand. And the city that we live in is called Pogradets. Just say polka dots and you'll be fine. It's a, a, a city that is mostly a Muslim population. We moved there to help a church be planted. And over the last few years, God has taken this small group of young, smoking, swearing teenage boys and grown it into a church of families, multi-generational, and uh, we are now reaching our city in a way that I never dreamed possible. Seriously, I'm shocked. And now we gather each week to grow and be a church. And many of you have come and served and seen that church and been a part of helping it grow. And when I look back, I, I'm just amazed at what God has done. Now you should know, I'm, I'm not someone that grew up wanting to be in ministry. I never had met a missionary until I was at least 18. It just wasn't in my DNA. I didn't grow up thinking, I'm going to go and be a part of reaching a nation that is lost. But when I heard that less than 1% of Albanians know Christ, it struck me. From the moment I heard that, I pursued going there. And, and at the time, I didn't know if we were going to go to Albania or not, but... One day, my wife and our six-month-year-old daughter got off the plane, and we, you know, we looked at each other and said, what have we done? We live in Albania, and now we've called it home for the last six years. We have four awesome children who can travel better than anyone I've ever met. You should see them on the plane. But when, when we pursued Albania, my wife and I, we, we had to count the costs, right? We knew... We were going to have to live in a, a, a country that spoke a different language. We're going to be foreigners the rest of our lives. We knew we were going to live in a poor country. That means we couldn't go to Costco and Target whenever we pleased. That's actually kind of hard. And then we're going to live in a country with poor health care. And I'd say that's by far our greatest challenge. And then we're going to live far away from our families and friends. We'd, we've missed weddings our kids see their grandparents a couple times a year, maybe. Cousins, hopefully once a year. And then we go through the shock of culture and loneliness. And over time, we would probably be kind of weird, right? Missionaries can get kind of weird over a couple of years. But you know what? You know what we didn't put on the list? Global pandemic. No way. 2020, guys. Early in March, our family drove across the border to Greece. We kind of do a big grocery run there. And when we came back through the border, we were notified, you have to be quarantined for two weeks. So we thought, well, we'll make it fun. We can do this. We're going to have fun night, family night. We did movie night. We did uh, dress-up night. We did Christmas night. We did spy night. We just got through those two weeks, made it as fun as possible. But during the end, they said, guess what? Everyone has to stay home indefinitely. And in order to go outside, you needed a permit. 
So every person from one household got one hour a day where they could go and get essential goods. So I'd mask up, I'd have my gloves, I'd come back with all this stuff and we're scrubbing it with, you know, hand sanitizer? Is that what we're supposed to do now? Is this the new normal? Why? Why are we doing this? Well, to be honest, we were scared. We had, all we saw was the news. And, and, and we're pretty close to Italy. And at that time, it was looking really scary. So we felt like, man, thousands could die. So we had to make a choice. We called people and said, should we leave Albania or should we stay? And we had to get to the bottom line. The bottom line is we had to be prepared to help people die. That's what we thought we were signing up for. And so we said, we'll stay. Two weeks turned into 50 days. My wife and kids didn't leave the house for 50 days. So that was fun. <laughs> During that time, our ministry obviously changed. And for Albania, a country quarantine meant that the vast majority were out of work. And they were going to run out of money. And so they would run out of food Families would struggle. This was going to be a horrible time of abuse and stress and drunkenness. And we did our best to help. And our church, because, because of many of you, in fact, were able to provide food boxes for families. We'd go to their, their homes, knock on the door and say, this is from our church. This is enough food for your family for a week. They'd never received a gift like that. Who are you? What is this for? Why are you giving this to us? Because we're from we represent the church. We represent Christ. Many of those families now have a Bible for the first time in their home. But personally, and I'll be honest, it's been, it's been a hard time for me. You know what? I'm a planner, and I'm social, and I'm relational. And as I watched our calendar slowly get wiped clean, I, I was bummed. We often have summers filled with teams that come from America, and we host camps with hundreds of people in really close proximity. So obviously it was, and this is the word of the year, right? It was all canceled. Canceled. But in June, our, our church was able to meet again. Of course, there was restrictions and limitations, but since June, we've had regular church ministry happening, which has been great. But I knew once we got to August, however, my family and I needed a break. So we planned to come to America to see family. We were going to do a road trip. This would be our, you know, refreshing vacation for the year. And so we came. We've had a great time with family. But in the midst of all that, we got a phone call and learned that my father has uh, blood cancer. And uh, it has not been officially diagnosed yet. And I know many of you have been praying for him. And we were told and we decided to stay until we know exactly how bad it is, and what's the plan. So we're waiting for that. I'll probably hear this week. So yeah, 2020, it feels kind of like, uh, you know, it feels like you're drowning and uh, you're fighting to catch your breath. And then for me, it was like this boulder just dropped. And it's been hard. And so if, if the Christian life is a race, I'm on a hill, I'm out of breath, I'm running barefoot in the sun, and, and honestly, scared about what's ahead of me. And as I've talked to people, I know it's not just me. We've, we've all had a really challenging year. Many Christians haven't been to church, and, and they, they bailed a long time ago on watching sermons online. Our fellowship does not work well on Zoom and Instagram and Facebook. It just doesn't cut it. If the Christian life is a race, it's a long race. 
It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And in a modern marathon, if you've ever done one, you pass all these stations where they give you a cup of water. And 2020 is like, it's like running in the heat of the sun. There's forest fires, you can't breathe because of the smoke, your shoes fell apart. And every time you think a water station's coming, it's just some protesters. I mean, this has just been nuts. Do you think some have fallen away in the faith? Do you think some people were not ready for this? Were you ready for this? This is a time when many people will no longer pursue faith in Jesus Christ. Many people are going to drop out. One pastor I know in ministry for decades said, this is the first year, Corey, where I thought, I I don't know if I can do this anymore. He didn't quit, but that feeling of despair has hit so many. Many will fall away in faith. Many others will give in to sin. 2020 will be a year when sin won for many. Families broken, marriages destroyed, abuse, isolation, drunkenness, despair. How are we, the church, to survive? How are we to help others survive? I have found great comfort in the Word of God. If the Bible is God's Word, then it's true. And at a time where it's difficult to know what is true, aren't we thankful to know we possess the truth of God? Aren't we thankful? And I would ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. It's a massive encouragement for us today. If you're discouraged, my hope, my goal for you today is that you would walk out those doors with bolder faith than you've ever had, unstoppable hope and endurance to run the race. The book of Hebrews, it's, it's 13 chapters. It takes about 45 minutes to read. And this book is unique in the New Testament. You know why? We don't know who wrote it. We have no idea. Isn't that interesting? We can guess. And so this person who wrote it, who we'll have to call the author, chose not to use his book in this name. The author was so closely connected with the apostles, but has a different style of writing than them. The other apostles who wrote books of the New Testament always had a specific audience in mind. Paul makes it easy to the church in Corinth, to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Rome. James, Peter, John, and Jude wrote to believers, not in a specific location, but to all. They wrote short letters that could easily be copied and sent to other locations. But the author of Hebrews is different. The audience in mind is a Jewish audience, people familiar with the Old Testament, but likely not the Church of Jerusalem, as it was likely decades after the day of Pentecost. So it could have, had, could have been Jews who were taught by the apostles themselves. And he unpacks some of the richest theology in the Bible for three different groups of Jewish people. And this is important. He's writing first to Jewish believers, those who formerly lived under the Jewish law but now have faith in Jesus as their Messiah, as the Son of God and Savior. He also writes to Jewish unbelievers who were convinced Jesus was the Messiah but were unwilling to commit spiritually. They knew the message of Jesus was true but would not live in faith. They had not yet surrendered. They had not yet committed. And finally, he writes to Jewish unbelievers who were not convinced Jesus was the Messiah. They actually intellectually did not believe and were unconvinced. They reject the gospel. 
and they oppose this new movement of Christianity. So bear in mind these three groups. Believers, those convinced. Unbelievers who were convinced but unwilling to surrender. And unbelievers unconvinced and so also unwilling to surrender their lives. The author addresses all three throughout this book and even identifies himself with them at times. So we must pay attention not only to what is said, but to who it is being said to. The author wants these people to understand that Christ is the supreme high priest. He's more supreme than angels. He brings a better way than Moses. He's a greater priest in the order of Melchizedek. He brings a better covenant, a better sacrifice. Christ is our high priest. And so the author presents all of this wonderful theology, but in the midst of it, he also gives six intense warnings. These warnings are serious. And if you were to read Hebrews, you would easily be able to identify them because they're really strong and really direct. You know what a warning is, right? It's information coming before a threat, right? My family and I drove down the coast from Seattle to California. We tried to make that drive beautiful. Uh, it, was, it was amazing to see the coast of the Pacific. And you know what we appreciated in the midst of it? There's tons of signs. America is full of signs, and, and maybe I've never noticed it before, or maybe it's because it's an election year, but there are signs everywhere. And as we drove, the ones that matter are the orange ones, right? They say, construction ahead. Bump ahead, falling rocks ahead, deer ahead. Now, you see in Albania, we don't have those. You just just fly into construction, you hit the bump, the rock hits you, and you kill the deer. (laughs) So warnings are a good thing. But sometimes they're hard. And today we're going to look at the greatest warning in the book of Hebrews. Let's open to chapter 10. After building a case for the supremacy of Christ as our eternal high priest, he urges the believers to hold fast to their faith. Love one another. Do good works. But there is a warning. And the author identifies himself with this second group, those who accepted the story of Jesus to be true, but had not yet surrendered their lives to him. He has a warning for them. Verse 26 and 27 say, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Make sure you read that well and understood what it's saying. This is a warning against what is called apostasy. Apostasy. It's a church word, right? It means forsake or abandon, leave behind, turn away. Hebrews 6, 4 or 6 say something similar. It says, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit, and tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. There are those who intellectually understand, are enlightened to, have knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they reject it. And this is beyond comprehending what the gospel is. This is acceptance that the gospel is true and choosing to still reject it. They learn of the great sacrifice of Jesus and reject it. And so what remains for them? 
nothing. There's no longer a sacrifice for their sins since they have rejected the only one that God provided. They are apostate. And what is their end? Verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of, an angry, of the living God. And this brings us to our passage today. We'll slow down and focus on chapter 10, 32 to 39. And to make this simple, this passage gives an exhortation for unbelievers and for believers. Let's be clear. The author doesn't know with absolute certainty where each person is at spiritually, but he speaks to the congregation as a whole and allows the message to penetrate where it can. Every congregation has believers and unbelievers, but those most in danger are unbelievers who believe they're saved or believe it's enough to understand the gospel and yet continue to sin. So if the shoe fits. Now, without skipping a beat, the author turns from addressing the apostate to address the unbelievers who intellectually understand and yet have not yet surrendered their lives. This group had come to full knowledge of the gospel and now simply needed to die to themselves and follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I'm sure as he penned this, he had a particular people in mind. These people who were on their way toward true belief but had not yet believed. Why were they part of this congregation? Maybe they were just curious about who Jesus was. Maybe they loved the fellowship and they loved the community. Maybe they had a great youth group or an amazing children's ministry that made family life so much easier. We don't know why the unbelievers were part of the congregation, but the author is concerned for them. At this point, the author would have worried that they, like the seed which fell upon the rocks, whose faith sprouted quickly, but because of no depth in the soil, the sun was going to rise and scorch them. And so this is his plead. This is the author calling the people who are on the edge of salvation to endure. So he speaks to those who need to let the gospel take root. To those who need true salvation, they're so close, but missing one thing. Now look at what he says to them. Let's read. 32 through 34. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you yourselves have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. After a warning against rejecting Christ, a warning against apostasy, he says, remember, remember, recall to mind. Mental reconstruction. And it's not something new in the Bible. The entire Bible is consistently calling God's people to remember. And you know why? We forget. Humanity forgets. We have to work to remember. All of mankind is bad at remembering. And for the Israelites, it was Passover, it was memorial stones, it was festivals, it was rituals, so that they would not forget the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. And Israel, as we know, did not remember. This is why God declares over and over, you did not remember, you have forgotten. Isaiah 17.10, for you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Isaiah 51.13, that you have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens. 
Jeremiah 3.21, they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Ezekiel 16.43, because you have not remembered the days of your youth, behold, I have in have enraged me by all these things. Behold, I in turn will bring your conduct down on your head, declares the Lord. So as we see, this command for these unbelievers who are on the edge, we should not take it lightly. There is great dangers for those who forget. And so the author tells this group, remember, recall, reconstruct in your mind the former days. So what happened in the former days? These people, as we see, were enlightened. They were exposed to the gospel. They understood the gospel. They were intellectually, they recognized it as truth. But they also went through a time of persecution. And the author expresses this in three ways. He says they went through suffering, reproaches, and tribulations. Some went through public shaming. These unbelievers had already suffered and had not yet quit. Now, not many Christians we know are openly persecuted. But these non-Christians stood with the church in their sufferings. They cared for the believers who were in prison and even for associating with the church had their homes taken and plundered. Now let's just wait a minute. The author tells them to remember the former days. Now you would think these are sweet memories, right? Remember the glory days? These are bad times. These are times of suffering and persecution, injustice, imprisonment, and plundering. Often when people need encouragement or inspiration to keep going, they talk about the good old days, not days of suffering. It's the married couple who recalls their early days of dating. Remember those days, honey? It was so exciting. It's the parents of challenging teenagers who recall how sweet and innocent their child used to be. The athletes who can't stop talking about when they won, the early days of a new business, lots of good times in the old days, the early days. So why in the world is the author telling them to remember the times of suffering and persecution? And it was because then these unbelievers were so close. Listen to his reason. Verse 34 through 36, for you showed sympathy to prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. In their days of suffering, they didn't care. They knew what God's promises were. Even in persecution, public shame, jail, or having their homes destroyed, they knew and understood God's promises. They even rejoiced in God's promises, even suffered for God's promises, and yet they failed, what? To do the will of God. So they did not yet have the reward. They did not yet possess the promises. Why? They were lacking one thing. The one thing needed. How can someone know and understand the gospel, suffer for the gospel, and participate in the gospel, and yet not have salvation in the gospel? Verse 37 and 38. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. They lacked one thing. The only thing that matters, faith. Something 
had caused the people who were previously a part of the church to, in fellowship, in compassion and suffering, to shrink back, to fall back. Now, this is likely not a new verse for you. You know, Romans 1, 16, 17, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, The righteous man shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul has used these verses before. But the author of Hebrew gives us a little bit more. This famous New Testament quote is from Habakkuk chapter 2. Now let me read for you what Habakkuk wrote. Chapter 2, three, the end of 3 and 4. For it will certainly come, it will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. The righteous live by faith. It's continuous faith. Faith becomes life. The righteous didn't live by faith once at camp when they were young. The righteous didn't live by faith once a week at church. The righteous didn't live by faith only when it was hard. The righteous continually and dependently live by faith every day and in every moment. Now, if you're paying attention, you'd notice this sounds a little different than what the author of Hebrews has said. Habakkuk says, the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But Hebrews says, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So to me, it's, it's a pretty loose translation. And it makes me ask, well, which is it? The one who's prideful or the one who shrinks back? So flip to Habakkuk chapter 2. And I'll give you some context while you find it. Because finding it's kind of hard. Good luck. Um, I'm making you work a little bit this morning. Habakkuk chapter 2. We probably don't know very much about Habakkuk. He's a minor prophet. He only wrote three chapters. And just to give you some background, he is a prophet who is angry. He lives during the darkest days of Israel's, and he writes his conversation with God. He's not a prophet that has a message for the people. He is simply talking to God. Habakkuk observes the nation of Israel around him, and he says, God, your people have abandoned your law, and the result is sin and injustice. They have forgotten. How long, O Lord? And God responds to him, and he says, don't worry. I'm going to raise up Babylon. They're going to come, and they will destroy the nation of Israel, and this will be their judgment. And this is not what the prophet wants to hear. Babylon? Really? Babylon? How can God discipline the unrighteous by using a people that are more unrighteous? How can God allow this? And Habakkuk makes it very clear. He doesn't like God's plan. So stick with me as I walk through these verses pretty quick. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me. His prophet, who is confused, discouraged, and wants answers, he goes up to the tower, and this is a, this is a watchtower. It's a place of safety, of defense, and it's a high place, probably the highest place in the city. And he raises himself up as close as he can get to God and says, I'm waiting right here until I get an answer. And then God answers, and it's kind of scary. Verse 2, then the Lord answered me and said, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. 
Meaning, you want answers? Get your pen out. Write it, read it, run. Verse 3, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Meaning, my judgment is coming at the exact time I have appointed, which is the best time for it to come, and nothing can stop it from coming. And this is where we get our famous verse. Behold, as for the proud, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. So guess what, Habakkuk? There's two types of people in the world. There are the proud and the righteous. What does proud mean? It means raised up. It means exalted. It means arrogant and puffed up. Now, where is Habakkuk? Oh, that's right. He's in the highest tower he can get in. He's exalted himself into a position to say, God, I don't like your plan. Now, there must have been this moment of shame as Habakkuk heard from God that the proud cannot please God. The author of Hebrews likely translated this verse from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation for the Hebrew Scriptures, and it reads like this, For he will surely come and will not tarry. If he should draw back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but the just shall live by faith. Hebrews intends then to build on this idea in order to draw the audience back to examine the words of the prophet. But the one who draws back, the one who shrinks back, does so by what? his inability to believe in God. So we have two people, the righteous who live by faith and the one who hides away. He fearfully takes a step back. He says, God, I don't like your plan. I don't like your timing. I don't want this. He therefore renounces God's authority and rather than trusting in the authority of God, says, I trust in myself. He literally makes himself a fortress. He is lost to his own pride. And so the one who is proud cannot please God. God said to Isaiah in chapter 13, verse 11, Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud because the proud draw back from the authority of God and find safety in their own strength. That's their high tower. God wasn't finished explaining himself to this angry prophet. The Lord continues to explain his sovereignty and justice and holiness. None of his glory will be minimized or compromised by these sinful nations. His holiness will stand forever. In his last words to Habakkuk, he says, Let all the earth be silent before me. In other words, who are you, O man, to question God? Habakkuk responds not in anger, not in resentment, but in absolute worship. And he ends this prayer of chapter 3 and says, Yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on the high places. Somewhere in there, Habakkuk surrendered. Beginning of chapter 2, he climbs to the tower to argue with God, the man-made tower. End of chapter 3, he glorifies God, the God alone who saves, the, the God alone who reigns, the God alone who raises the faithful to high places. He exalts the faithful. He raises the faithful. He lifts up the faithful. With their faith, man can not only endure through trials and suffering, but will victoriously climb to the mountaintops, the God-made mountains. And it's with all these thoughts and lessons in mind that the author of Hebrew turns his attention to the believers. 
Go ahead and flip back to Hebrews 10. And he now identifies himself both with those who will believe and those who already do believe and proclaims in verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of their souls. So again, we have two people, those who shrink back and those who have faith. And we, he says, are not those who shrink back, We don't draw back. We don't retreat because we have no fear. Those who shrink back only do so because they are afraid. They pause. They freeze. They hesitate. And it often results in a devastating fall. Now, maybe you have, some of you in here, probably many of you have Instagram. You know what it is. Uh, And one of my favorite pages, some of you might know what this is, it's Kookslam's. If you know what that is, it's great. Um, it's, it's these short videos of people doing extreme sports and just blowing it. Uh, a lot of surfing videos, they just wipe out. Uh, we grew up watching America's Funniest Home Videos, and this is, it's just how I grew up. It's funny. Um, and one of my favorite people on Kook Slams are the jumpers. It could be a cliff, a bridge, um, a tree, a rock, whatever. People get up on the edge of the cliff, and they're going to jump. And it's high, and it's scary. And they are the best falls. Um, The best is when there's two friends that are holding hands. They say, one, two, three, and one hesitates and just pulls. Oh, that's bad. Um, But they all fall for the same reason. The same reason every time. They hesitated. They held back. They drew back. If you're going to jump off the cliff, you had better be all in. One hesitation and you're going to barrel down and someone's going to film it and I will laugh about it. (laughs) Some of these people are the perfect image of what it means to shrink back. He tells the believers this truth. We do not hold back. We do not hesitate. We do not withdraw because it leads to what? Destruction. But we are those who have faith, which leads to what? The preservation of our souls. This is about eternal life and eternal death. Heaven and hell destruction, and salvation. And the one who has faith is saved. And so the clearest question, the most obvious question that we should ask ourselves right now is, what is faith? If that's salvation, that's what I need. What is it? And praise God, the author of Hebrews tells us in the very next verse, 11.1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. True faith in the Lord Jesus Christ gives you assurance and security in things hoped for. What are those things? The salvation of your soul, eternity in heaven, the fulfillment of all of God's promises to his children. True faith gives you the convictions of things you've never seen. You have never seen God. You have never seen Christ. You've never seen the Holy Spirit. You have never seen heaven. And yet everything you do is the result of your convictions that those things are true. You're under the Lord. You've surrendered to him. And so you have no fear. For you live today for the eternity to come. We do not shrink back to destruction. But we have faith that endures and perseveres. Hebrews 11, as we know is a chapter that lists these Old Testament examples of faith. Now, we don't have time to mention them, but beyond the Old Testament, we today have examples of the New Testament. Faith lived out in people like Paul and Peter, the apostles, Mary, 
And throughout the history of the church, we have faithful saints who have run before us. How many have lived before us in faith? How many have battled for the faith? How many have been killed for their faith before us? We are surrounded by these examples before us. And the climax of the entire books of Hebrews comes in chapter 12, verse 1, which says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Let me conclude by addressing you. I don't, I don't know where you're at with the Lord today. But after studying this passage together, I hope we can better identify where you are. I hope you're sure. I hope you have clarity First, to you who are close but have not yet surrendered, you're not sure if you're saved. Today is the day. You have to surrender today. You know the truth and you understand. And you sit in here today and you would be foolish to walk out the doors believing that tomorrow is a better day. Jesus said in Luke 9, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he will save it. Deny yourself and follow him. Today you have been warned, and you cannot delay. Would you give up anything that is holding you back? Surrender to him. Now, remember, Jesus does not want you to be good enough. You don't need to prove yourself He doesn't even want you to figure out how to do your best. He just wants you to surrender your life and become radical, devoted, an unshakable believer in him, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, to the believers, I want you to read this verse one more time. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now, this sentence is in the indicative mood. What does that mean? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. The author doesn't say, don't shrink back. You shouldn't shrink back. Or if if you do shrink back, he says, we do not shrink back. In regard to faith, it's the same. He doesn't say, try to have faith. Keep the faith. Good luck with your faith. No, he says, we are those who have faith. For the Christian, this is a fact. This verse is about who we are. It's our identity. My oldest daughter, Shiloh, got to wakeboard for the first time this summer. And we're in the water, and she's trying to get up. Takes a few times, and she's falling, and I can tell she wants to quit. She's getting that look that says, I don't want to do this anymore. But rather than take five minutes while we float in the water... And explain the importance of not quitting. I just say, Shiloh, we don't quit. Shiloh, Kramers don't quit. Guess what? She sucked it up and she got up. Christians, we don't fall back. We do not hesitate. But we have faith. Like the apostles, we can say, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. I know some in this room have the thought, well, Corey, I'm not Paul. 
I'm not an apostle. I'm not a church planter. I'm not a missionary. And if that's what you think, you are missing it. This is our identity. Because of God's love, we are chosen, Ephesians 1.5. Because of God's grace, we are saved, Ephesians 2.8. Because of Jesus, we are redeemed, Hebrews 9.15. Because of Jesus, we are justified, 2 Corinthians 6.11. Because of the Holy Spirit, we are sanctified, Titus 3.5. Because of the Holy Spirit, we are guaranteed for salvations, 1 Corinthians 2. Because of this, we are citizens of heaven, Philippians 3. And because of all these things, we do not lose heart, 2 Corinthians 14. We do not shrink back in fear. We do not hesitate to trust. We do not second guess what God is doing. We have faith. We stand on the rock of salvation. We shout from the rooftops. We press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We do not quit. Over a hundred years ago, this prayer was found, this prayer of commitment uh, by a pastor in Zimbabwe who was martyred. And you, you've probably heard it before, but it, let's end with this incredible statement of who you are. He wrote, and it's true of us, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the, lo- the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudity, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith lean on his presence, walk by patience, and uplifted by power and labor, by prayer. My pace is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed, I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I will give up, shut up, let up, until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all I know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Christian, that is who you are. What a time to recognize again who we are. Pandemics, cancellations, protests, elections, fires, smoke. It's big stuff. And then we all have personal trials we're going through. It's been a crazy year. But this is who we are. And it's only by fixing our eyes on Christ that we can continue to run the race. We do not quit. And he gives you endurance you need. As he is the one who endured for you. For the joy set before him. He endured the cross and is now seated at the right hand of God. That's the finish line. Run toward your Savior.